0: Father in heaven, we ask that today will be a day of solemnity, a day of joy, a day of opportunity. As we come before you now, Father, every time in corporate worship like this that we come to the text of Scripture, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to make a choice, a choice to humble ourselves before you and your word or to ignore and to neglect you and your word. And Father, as we draw this chapter, this uh, chapter of Kings to a close in our study through the Old Testament of Blazing Grace. Father, I pray that it would be a close that would give us a sense of caution, a sense of danger, but also a sense, a longing sense of hope for Messiah. And so Father, please, now as we open Scripture, we would not want to do so without first asking for the Spirit. That the Spirit will come into this room and into the hearts that are in this room and make us attentive, not just intellectually, but spiritually, emotionally, morally attentive to you and your word. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. All right, let me catch you up on what's happening here, just a little bit of where we're at and where we're going. Now, under normal circumstances, we would have our Blazing Grace banner up here, which would be showing the seven chapters through which we are working to get through our study of the Old Testament. We're coming now down to the end of the year, but our study through the Old Testament will actually continue right up until about March 16 is when this series will close and we'll launch the next series that we'll tell you more about after the holiday break. Uh, But today's presentation is the last sermon, the last of eight, I believe, in the chapter on the kings. The chapter on what, Everyone. King. So for those of you that have been with us, we started with creation, then exodus, land, um, I think I'm forgetting one here, uh, kings, that sounds about right, e- uh, exodus, land, king, something like that, it's hard to remember when it's not up there. Exile, thank you, exile, and then finally Messiah. So here's what's going to happen, we're actually going to take an exile from the series for the next four Sabbaths. Uh, The next four Sabbaths, there are going to be guest preachers here, including something I'm really excited about next Sabbath. We have one, two, three, four young people that are going to give our sermon next Sabbath. Can the church say amen? Amen. Absolutely thrilled about that. Next Sabbath, our sermon will be divided into four parts and will be given by the young people of this church, and I'm very excited about that. I'm not going to let you know who that is. Uh, You'll find out next week. It's going to be really great. I'm excited about that. So over the course of the next four Sabbaths, those, the sermons can be on anything and everything. It's going to vary somewhat widely based on what I've heard a little bit about the sermons that are coming. I think next Sabbath we will have sort of a Christmassy theme, and then Marty will preach, Blair will preach, and Daniel Christie will preach. Then as we resume, Jared will launch in January, relaunch uh, our A Blazing Grace series, and we'll start back up with the first sermon on our penultimate chapter which is exile, which will set us up for the final chapter, which is Messiah. Uh, So today, we turn our attention to the last chapter on the kings, and the chapter is titled, or our sermon today is titled, The Low Places. The Low Places. Let's just sort of take stock of where we are. Last Sabbath, we we talked about Israel. We divided this Sabbath and last Sabbath between Israel and now this Sabbath, Judah. And we find the, the demise, the sad and terrible demise of Israel, the ten nation the ten tribes of the nation of Israel in second Kings chapter seventeen. And these are words almost impossible to believe, and yet there they are, right in the middle of Scripture, as a siren for us, living many thousands of years later. It says in second Kings chapter seventeen, verses thirty-three and thirty-four, they feared the Lord Yahweh yet served their own gods. Now, I just want the force and the paradox and the irony of that to sink into your brain this morning. They feared Jehovah. They feared the true God, but they served their own gods. This is what's called syncretism, the joining of many different kinds of gods. And you might remember last week we made this simple point. Once Yahweh became just another god, just another deity of the many regional deities that were available in ancient Canaan, well, it was just shortly thereafter that Israel became just another nation. As soon as Yahweh becomes just another god, it's just a matter of time before Israel becomes just another nation. That's exactly what happened. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. According to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away, they continue practicing the former rituals, says the chronicler. It goes on in the same chapter, verses 40 and 41. However, they did not obey, but these followed their former rituals. Watch this. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. They feared the Lord yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. In fact, this is the very last verse in 2 Kings chapter 17. This is the last verse, full stop, period, about Israel in the Old Testament in terms of the final demise uh, of, of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. They have now been subsumed into Assyria. The diaspora has happened and uh, we'll talk more about that. We'll pick up the dispersion of the diaspora of uh, the, the, the nations of is- uh, the tribes of Israel and eventually the tribes of Judah when we return for exile and return from exile as well. And so this is how, in this ignominious, humiliating fashion, the history of Israel, this was not what God intended. This was not God's plan. This was no part of God's hope. But here we are. We find in, in a syncretism, the joining of Yahweh with the various other Canaanite gods and regional deities that were around. Israel was absorbed into it. They got carried away with the culture. And the verse here says, oh, yes, yes, they served Jehovah. But they also served their other gods. So Israel, if Israel was like a skydive, only down. Last Sabbath, we talked about the 19 kings of divided Israel uh, 21, uh, if we include, or 22, if we include Solomon, David, and Saul, uh, Israel, is, if it's a skydive only down, there was not a single king in Israel that was a good king, with the exception of David. But of course, of the ten tribes, there was not a single one. Then Judah, which we're going to talk about this Sabbath, is more like a roller coaster—a lot of down with a little bit of up. And this is what we're going to spend our time on today. Judah. Last Sabbath, Israel. This Sabbath. The demise, final demise of Judah. Here are the kings of Judah. From Rehoboam, the first king of Judah, to Zedekiah the last. There were 20 kings. This extends from uh, the time of 930 B.C. until the final destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple in 80, uh, excuse me, B.C. 587-86. Ended by Babylonian conquest. That's where our sermon is going to end today. It sets us up perfectly for our own exile in anticipation of a several sermons on exile as we look forward to Messiah. And uh, that's where we're at. Now, instead of going through as we did last Sabbath, every one of the kings of Israel, I thought I would just give you a simple summary of the basic kings of Judah. And uh, I've graded them from basically the same sort of evil scale that I used. Last week, I did something similar this week. In terms of really bad, somewhere between really bad and bad, there were 12 of the 20 kings of Judah could be fairly classified as somewhere between a 2, 3, somewhere a 2, 3, or a 4 on the evil scale. Remember, this is out of 4. Out of a 4 stars for evil, 12 of the 20 kings of Judah were somewhere in that spectrum. 2, 3, or 4 stars. Among these were names like Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon. Uh, and uh, Ammon were the worst of the, these kings. The longest reigning was Manasseh, 55 years. We'll talk more about him in just a bit. Then you have six of the kings of Judah, which were somewhat good to mostly good, right? And uh, six of the 20, something like one or maybe two stars on the good scale. Again, this is completely subjective, just trying to give you a feel for the shape ...of this chapter in Old Testament history. These would be people like Asa who we'll talk a little bit about, Jehoshaphat who we'll talk a little bit about, Joash, Jotham and others. The longest reigning of these good to somewhat good kings was Uzziah, uh, Uzziah, who was 52 years. And then we have two of the twenty, what you might call the best kings of Judah. I give them a good rating of four out of four stars. Though some Probably uh, Hezekiah deserves only three and a half stars um hezekiah reigned 29 years and josiah reigned 31 years so that catches us up we got 12 bad we got six that are like eh, leaning toward good and then we have two very good kings and this is over a history spanning the better part of actually more than 300 years and i want to start with the bible trivia question that i'm guessing very few of us in this room perhaps none of us could give an answer to and that is what do asa jehoshaphat jehoash amaziah and jotham all have in common Well rather than having you guess, I'm just going to read the Bible texts that are relevant and you tell me if you can see what these have in common. Come with me first of all to 1 Kings chapter 15 to Asa. 1 Kings chapter 15, I hope your fingers are feeling nimble and dexterous this morning. You're going to need that dexterity. 1 Kings chapter 15 and we'll pick it up in verse 9. 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 9, here we read about Asa, king of Judah. Verse 9 says, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Mekah, and she was the the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. That was something we never heard about a king in Israel, right? Of the 10 tribes of Israel, we never heard that a single time, that so-and-so did what was right right in the sight of the Lord. But here, with Asa, king of Judah, we actually read those words. Astonishing though they be, verse 11, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land. He removed all the idols that his father had made. Now, this is good. We're rolling. We're on some winds here. Verse 13, he also removed Mekah, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she made an obscene image of Asherah. We talked about that last week. That was a Canaanite female deity that was, some scholars believe, set up almost as the wife of Yahweh. This is syncretism at its finest, where we have the true God, Yahweh, who's now being married, as it were, to a Canaanite deity, Asherah. It continues that he, he, took, he got rid of the queen mother Uh, this obscene image, and he burned it by the brook Kidron. Verse 14, but the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. Okay, so that's Asa. Come with me now to Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings, just go a few chapters forward to 22. We're going to learn about Jehoshaphat. We'll pick it up in verse 41. 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, so this is Asa's son, had become king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. We talked about Ahab last week. He's going to come up briefly here a little bit later. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shil- Shilhai. And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. We just read that Asa was a good guy, that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Okay, that's two out of the five. Let's go now to our third, Jehoash. And for that, we go to 2 Kings. Jump from 1 Kings to 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12, we begin in verse 1 with Jehoash. Again, we're asking the question, what do Asa, what do Asa Jehoshaphat Jehoash, Amaziah, and Jotham all have in common. We pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was ding, 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 right in the sight of the Lord. There again, that's something we never saw with all the kings of Israel. All the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him, verse 3, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. We're t- we turn our attention out of the fourth of five, to Amaziah, we stay in Second Kings, we go to chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he, ding, 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 did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Okay? Probably some of you are already picking up on it. We'll go to our fifth and final, Jotham. We stay in 2 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 32. Chapter 15, verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, King of Judah began to reign. He was 25 years old. Seems to be a popular age to become king when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha. Uh, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was ding, 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 right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. So how many of you now feel like you could answer the question, what is it that Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoash, Amaziah, and Jotham all have in common? What is it? They did what was right, but they did not what? They did not remove the high places. And just to remind ourselves here, the high places were the places of pagan worship. The places that when the Israelites came into the land, they were specifically instructed, you will find shrines, you will find little temples in the groves and in the high places, you will find them. And they were given very specific instructions of how to relate to these shrines and these temples and these places of worship that they would discover. I'll, I'll read you just a few of the texts from Deuteronomy and Exodus to remind us of how they were relate to these cultural relics that would have been left in the wake of the departure of the Canaanites from the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 5 says, These are the statutes Moses speaking and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your... God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth this is going back now hundreds of years centuries before and God is prepping the children of Israel again they're not divided at this point this is the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the land and Moses says among other things hey listen this is what the Lord wants you to do when you come into this land that you are going to take and dispossess the peoples that are there now you shall utterly destroy all the what's the next word Okay, let's say, it together. let's say it with a little more enthusiasm than that. All the places you shall utterly destroy. Not just knock over a little bit here. No, no, no. Utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. This language is absolutely plain and cannot be mistaken. He says, hey, when you come into this land, these are peoples that you don't know. These are nations that worship in ways that are foreign to you and unfamiliar to you. They worship a host of deities in a host of really perverted and disgusting ways. We'll talk briefly about that in a moment. We've already talked about some of it in the past. And God says, when you come in and you find those places of worship, when you find those shrines that have left vacant by their departure, what are you to do with them? What are you supposed to do? Utterly destroy them. It goes on. You shall, uh, next verse here, it says, and you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names. I don't even want you to know the names of these other gods from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name for his dwelling place. And of course, that was in the sanctuary. Down on the valley floor was the sanctuary that God had given to Moses from Mount Sinai. Now, here's a remarkable thing. Let these, just what we've learned so far, let this settle into your mind. We began this presentation this morning by taking a look at the very last verses in all of Scripture on Israel, and it says that Israel, Israel's demise as they went, into way, went away into Assyrian conquest and captivity basically boiled down to this single idea. They feared the Lord, but they also served the other gods. Let that settle in. They feared the Lord, but they, just to hedge their bets, they also worshipped the other regional deities. This was the marvelous contribution of Judaism to the ancient world. And Scholars even today look at Judaism and they say the singular contribution of Judaism. What set Judaism apart from all of the other tribes, that, nomadic tribes that would have existed in the ancient uh, Middle East was their rigid insistence on monotheism. In the ancient world, there was the god of that mountain and the god of that river. There was the god of that valley and the god that lived over that lake. There were all of these different gods, regional deities. And when you came into a new area, you had a couple options. You could just assimilate your gods that you have been worshiping where you're from, and you could just assimilate this new god into your practice. Or you could conquer that god and say, "Well, our god has conquered this regional deity or this uh, god of this people that have now been conquered." You had options. But for the most part, there was this massive syncretism where people would just absorb the various other deities of the nations and the tribes and the people that they either were adjacent to or in some cases had conquered. Judaism's contribution to this, Scripture's contribution to this was to say there is no God of that mountain. There is no God on the other side of that river. There is only how many gods? There is one God, he's the creator God, he's the God that made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so when you come into this other land and you see all of these shrines and temples and places of worship to these other, quote, gods, God says destroy them. Destroy the shrines, destroy the altars, destroy all of it, erase their names, because they are not gods. Now, if time allowed, I could show you this morning, there are several places in the Old Testament that say, in fact, these purported gods were actually demons, So people were worshiping what they took to be gods that were actually supernatural powers that the Bible describes as fallen angels, as demons. In other words, as the enemy of the true God. And so God was absolutely uh, uh, emphatic about the response of his people when they came into the land. Don't learn their names. Don't inquire about how they used to worship. Just destroy those places of worship lest you be enticed and lured in. And I want you to see that here. Continuing on, uh, just a few verses later, also in Deuteronomy chapter 12, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them, and you dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not, and I've italicized a word there. What's that word? You are not ensnared. To be ensnared means to be trapped unwittingly, to be deceived. You didn't know that you were getting trapped, and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I'm trapped. Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods. Don't ask questions like, how did these nations serve their gods? Hey, I'll I'll do the same. Again, it's very difficult for us to appreciate just how singular and significant a contribution rigid monotheism was to the ancient world. This idea that there's only one God was something that had to be drummed into the mind of the Israelites because the prevailing culture said, no, 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 that's absurd. There's lots of gods. There's this God and that God and there's the God over there and there's the God over here and there's the God over here. And God's like, no, the Lord, our God, the Lord, he alone is God. God. Right? There's only one God. He's the creator. He's the God that entered into a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and those after them. And so God says, when you come into the land, don't ask yourselves questions like, Hey, what about these other gods? What were their names? I wonder how these people worshipped. He said, no. When you find these places, destroy them. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates they have done, to their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And we spent time on this already in this series, talking about how a central feature of this Canaanitish worship was at times to show an act of supreme devotion and loyalty to whatever regional deity might be under consideration, to offer your own child. And in Jeremiah 19, God says, this idea of sacrificing your child never even came into my mind. I find this so disgusting, so repulsive, and frankly so absurd, the idea never came into my mind. So God was not here just being elitist. He wasn't being you know, a, a cultural Nazi and saying, my culture is the only culture that can be on earth. My culture is the only culture that can prevail. We're going to talk about that in just a second. God's chief concern was that he knew that many of the specific practices that were involved in the Canaanite worship and in the Canaanite culture were so deplorable, so grotesque, so repulsive and disgusting, that God said, the last thing I want you to think is that I'm like that, and for you to start to, to synchronize and to harmonize the worship of me, the one true God, and all of these other ridiculous demonic deities that require absurd things like the offering of a child. And so it says it here. Even to cause their sons and their daughters, uh, they burn them in the fire to their gods. Going all the way back to Exodus 34, beginning in verse 11, God said to Moses, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be, and I've italicized the word here again, same word, a snare. A snare. See, it doesn't look like it's going to catch you a snare. But then it does. Suddenly you find yourself ensnared. You didn't know that was going to happen. A snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars. You shall break their sacred pillars. Cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they play the harlot with their gods. And make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them, hey, say, invites you to come. Hey, come and eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and of his daughters to play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods, you shall make no molded gods for yourself. God here is arguing very strong. He's passionate about no intermarriage, no interrelation, no syncretism between the worship of Yahweh, which took place in the sanctuary in a single location with a described priesthood on the valley floor. As contrasted with all of these different kind of priests and all of these different kinds of places and several times in the Kings and the Chronicles, it speaks about perverted persons. A certain king, we just read about Asa, he drove the perverted persons from the Lord and because of the nature of a public presentation such as this... I'll just have to allow you to either do your own research or let your imagination run a little wild here. Suffice it to say, there was a sensual and sexual, significantly sexual element to much of the worship of these Canaanite deities. There was something very alluring about it, something very carnal. There, there was something that was quite attractive. This was why God was concerned. God was like, hey, listen, you've got to get rid of that because there's a danger that you could be taken up. You could find yourself unwittingly attracted to it and ultimately ensnared. As I put here on the screen, clearly there was something alluring about these places and about their gods. And one of those allurements was that there was a significant sexual and sensual element coupled with this deplorable notion of child sacrifice. God's command was absolutely strict. When you come into the Canaan land, when you find their shrines, when you find their altars, when you find their places of worship, and when you find the names of their gods, don't inquire, don't set up a little landmark as a cultural reminder, destroy it. It's an abomination to me, and I need it to be an abomination to you. And yet, three centuries later, when we finally read about the demise of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, what does it say? That Israel did exactly what God had feared. They feared the Lord. They they stood in awe of Jehovah, but they also worshipped these other gods in the same way that their children and their children's children had been doing for generations. And God finally said, and this is a a significant uh, summary of the entire Old Testament, this section of the Old Testament, God said, if you insist on making those kinds of decisions, I will honor your choice. If you insist on making those kinds of choices, I will be forced to honor your choice. And I say again, the moment that Yahweh became just another God, Israel became just another nation subject to judgment, and no longer under the protection that had been afforded to them as descendants of Abraham and as partakers of the covenant. Now come with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, and here as we get down toward the end of the kings of Judah, there is a significant shift, and we're introduced to the two great kings of Judah, Hezekiah and Joash, and we pick up Hezekiah in chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel. Remember, that's the last king of Israel. Israel is carried away into Assyrian captivity a, a century before the demise, the final demise of Judah. There were no kings in Israel that did what was right, and they were they were gone within three short centuries. But Judah. They lingered. They stayed a little while longer. And it was because of people like Hezekiah. Look at this. Verse 22. He was 25 years old and he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of, Ze- of Zechariah. And he did what was ding, 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 right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And look at verse 4. Notice the contrast with Jehoshaphat and Amaziah and Asa. He, what's the next word in verse 4? He removed. He removed. The high places, he broke the sacred pillars, he cut down the wooden images, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. In other words, that bronze serpent that Moses had set up all the way back in the book of Numbers, they had even made an idol out of this. They were mad with idolatry, they were mad with polytheism. But when Hezekiah ascended the throne, he was different than Jehoshaphat, he was different than Asa. They were good kings. They did what was right, the chronicler tells us, but they didn't remove the high places. Okay? Hezekiah was of a different order. He was cut from a different cloth. When Hezekiah came to to, to to rule, he not only did what was right, he began to systematically remove these high places of worship that God found so absolutely abominable. This was the experience of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah had a son, and his name was Manasseh. And it's astonishing to think that one of Judah's two best kings would have as his son Manasseh, who was far and away the very worst king in Judah. And let's read a little bit about Manasseh here. Chapter 21, 2 Kings chapter 21. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Second Kings chapter 21 and verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned... Fifty-five years in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Hephizba, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Even though his father was a godly man who began to remove the high places, buckle your seatbelts and get ready for this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. I'm in verse 2, according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast before the children of Israel. Verse 3, for he, what's this now? What did he do? He, He rebuilt. Now, this is a whole nother level of rebellion. This is a whole nother level of apostasy and evil. Because the other kings that were before, all they did was leave what was already there standing. Okay? But Hezekiah comes in and tears those places down. And Manasseh, his son, comes and rebuilds the very... This is astonishing. This is Ahab-level apostasy. This is Ahab-level departure. In fact, that's not just a David Asheret comparison. Look at what the chronicler himself says. Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. He made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. You will recall, if you were here last Sabbath, that when the chronicler got to Ahab, he basically said Ahab was the worst of the worst of the worst. There was never anybody who was as bad as Ahab. And we just read that Manasseh, the son of the godly king Hezekiah, was like Ahab establishing rebuilding resurrecting all of this canaanite perverted worship practices right in the heart of israel verse 4 this just goes from it goes downhill rapidly he built altars in the house of the lord of which the lord god had said in jerusalem i will put my name he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the lord he made his sons to pass through the fire The very abominable practice that God said the Canaanites were doing as some act of loyalty and devotion to their gods, something that God said was so perverted he didn't even want the Israelites to be aware of it. And now the king of Judah, the son of a godly king, Hezekiah, is practicing this. Verse 6, he made his son to pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 7, he even... The, the use of the word even here is, is significant. He even set up a carved image of Asherah. That's the so-called wife of Yahweh. Set up a, a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, uh, and had said to, uh, which the Lord had said to David and, uh, and to Solomon, his son, in the house and in Jerusalem, which I have put of all the tribes of Israel, my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I give their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I command them, and according to all the land that the servant Moses commanded them. End quote. He's quoting from Moses. Look at verse 9, last verse here on Manasseh. It says, but they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced. What a fascinating word, Manasseh seduced. Here again, there's, a, there's the sense of allurement. To be seduced has a sexual, sensual connotation. The Bible is somewhat discreet and demure, but historians are not. And I invite you to go and do a little bit of research, if you're inclined, about the kinds of practices that were involved in ancient Canaanite worship. It will make you sick to your stomach. The Bible is comparatively demure. It says things like uh, uh, seduced. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. This is the chronicler's way of saying that Israel now ends up worse than the nations that they were supposed to dispossess. Manasseh. But then, astonishingly, Manasseh has a son. His name is Amon, and we're not going to spend any time on Amon. Amon then has a son who's the grandson of Manasseh and the great-grandson of Hezekiah, and he is the greatest of all the kings of Judah, and his name is Josiah. Join me in chapter 23 of 2 Kings. We near now the end of the history of Judah. Josiah was one of the very last of the kings. And we pick it up in verse 1. Second kings chapter 23 verse 1. Now the king sent to them together all the elders of Jerusalem, and, uh, Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah. And with the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people both small and great. He read in their hearing the words... All the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. And you will remember that last Sabbath I said we hear almost nothing about the covenant in the history of Israel. And the reason is, there was nothing to say. Israel had ignored the covenant. They had departed from the covenant. The word basically doesn't appear in the history of Israel. But here, as soon as somebody turns to God, what word makes its, it makes its appearance? What word rears its head? Covenants. A reminder of that Abrahamic promise that God had made that that he would multiply Abraham, that he would send the deliverer through him, that in Abraham all and his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Verse 3, notice this word just comes again and again. Then the king stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord, an agreement, an arrangement to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimony his statutes with all of his heart and his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. They're talking about the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Exodus and Numbers as well, but especially Deuteronomy. The people took a stand for the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and the priests of the second order, the doorkeepers, to bring out of the, temple all of, the, of the temple of the Lord all of the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. And he carried their ashes to Bethel. Jump down. You can just read all of this. Jump down to verse 10. Josiah defiled Topheth, which was in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. They went right up to the very place, apparently the geographical location where this abominable activity was carried out, the sacrificing of children, and they they destroyed it. Josiah devastated that place. Jump down to verse 14. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden images. He filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover the altar that was at Bethel. The high place which Jeroboam the original idolater. Jeroboam going back to the one that had actually established at Bethel and Dan. These calves and had tried to reenact the Aaronic Rebellion who made Israel sin, he made both the altar and the high place. He broke it down. He burned the high place. He crushed it to powder, and he burned down the wooden image. And it goes on and talks about how he made a covenant. You can pick it up in verse 20. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there the altars, and he burned men's bones on them, he returned to Jerusalem, and then the king commanded all of the people, saying, keep the Passover of the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of Moses. Now, verse 22 is very insightful. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the Judges. So Josiah says, we're going to keep Passover, the first feast in the Jewish calendar. This lets you know how far they had departed from God's intent, from, from God's spiritual intent for these people. They kept Passover, and then the chronicler says, they hadn't kept Passover like that since the time of the judges. That is centuries before. How far had Judah itself fallen? Keep the Passover of the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Verse 22, such a Passover surely had not been... Uh, held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Verse 24, Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, household gods and idols, all the abominations that were in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned his who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any, arise after, uh, did any arise like him after him. And yet with all of that reform and with all of that revival, the first word of verse 26 is nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless what? That means but, however, yet... Nevertheless the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. In fact this is chapter 25 or chapter 23 24 25 and that's it. Kings it's done. You get to cha- by the time you get to chapter 25, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar shows up, actually his captain shows up, absolutely devastates Jerusalem, t- uh, b- burns the temple, this beautiful Solomonic temple that had been built just a few centuries before, burns it to the ground. Israel's been in Assyrian captivity for a century. Now Judah, even though she was marginally, she was more faithful by comparison but still not anywhere near the faithfulness and, and the people that God had called them to be, and now the dream has died. It's over. For all intents and purposes, the history of God's covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, come to an inglorious, tragic, humiliating, and ignoble end by the end of 2 Kings chapter 25. It's over. Israel's in Assyria a century before, and now Judah has devastated the temple, devastated Jerusalem, and carried the best and the brightest, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Hananiah, Azariah, Meshach, away into Babylonian captivity. And when we return from our four-week exile, we will take up the exile and we will talk about what happened in this interim period. Now, I want to ask a few questions here as we close. What are the high places? That is to say, the places of compromise in your life. Because there were the bad kings, there were the 12 out of 20 that were just plain bad, right? But then there were the six, and they were good. They were probably good like many of us in this room are good. They did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And my guess would be that if you're here on Sabbath morning, you're taking the time out of your holiday schedule to come and sit in church and to listen to a guy from America speak, at some level you have a desire to do what is good and what is right. I don't doubt that. In fact, my thoughts about every person in this room are genuinely positive and genuinely good. So I have a question for you good people and for myself, who I consider to be a good person. What are the high places? The high places were simply places of compromise because even though Asa and even though Amaziah and even though Jehoshaphat and the others, Jotham and Jehoash, even though they did what was right, there were some things that they were unwilling to do. There were, they, they made a compromise. They said, look, I'll have a little bit of this and I think I can cover the little bit of this with a whole lot of this. And so I have a question. What are the high places in your lives? What are the places of compromise Where you know that you could and should go tear something down, that you could and you should be following the word of the Lord, but you are just opting not to because you mistakenly believe that if you have enough of the good, it will make up for the high places that still remain in the computer, in the refrigerator, right, in the checkbook. In the secret chat rooms or wherever it is that you hide your high places, it's astonishing because we saw last week that it says that the children of Israel thought they did these things in secret. Many of these shrines were positioned under groves and in in places that were not easy to come by. It's as if they, they knew that they were doing wrong, but they tried to hide it. You can't hide anything from the true God. Can somebody say amen? It's just as if you were doing it right out in the open. But we, in an act of of self-deception, what can only be described as self-deception, when we keep our high places, we don't advertise them. We keep them in our own little secret places and secret compartments. And the question I have for you and the question that I have for me as I was studying about the kings of Judah, you can't say this about the kings of Israel because they never thought to tear down the high places that were located in their territory. But we have these six kings of Judah. Man, they were good. Scripture even says they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But in each case, one, two, three, four, five, six... They didn't tear down the high places. They thought mistakenly that enough good would cover these inconsistencies, these hypocrisies, and these, these high places. These places of, well, we'll just pretend like that's not really there, but I'm doing good here. This will cover that. The right hand washes the left. The question is, what are the high places in my life, and what are the high places in your life, and what's really taking place here? What do these high places represent well they represent a great many things but i would like to suggest here this morning that basically what they represent is an acquiescence and an accommodation to a godless culture i want to say that again these high places represented an acquiescence and an accommodation to a godless culture i'm just going to spend a few moments here parenthetically talking to you about contextualization versus capitulation Those high places are really the lowest places, right? Those places are not the high places, they're the low places. That's why we called the sermon today the low places. To contextualize and to compromise are not at all the same thing. This is one of the great conversations that's been taking place in the Christian church all the way back to the time of circumcision. What about circumcision? Was this a compromise or was this a contextualization? Right And right through, first, second, third, if you're, a, if you're a student of church history, you will know that there have been a number of issues right down to modern times. One of the great conversations that the church has, and we always think, uh, quite mistakenly, that it's a modern conversation. In fact, it's an ancient conversation. How much contextualization is too much? When does it become worldliness? Right? This is the, the big conversation, and we're going to talk here about how there are two extremes. One is no contextualization, and the other is over-contextualization. When the people went into the land of Canaan, at some level, those kings and the other Israelites that, that went along with them, they believed that they could accommodate and acquiesce to a godless culture. And I wonder if you're doing the same thing. I wonder if I'm doing the same thing. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament now, we move forward many hundreds of years, and Paul says, for though I am free from all men, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, I have made my servant, myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who were as under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those that are without the law, as without the law, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some, and I do this for the gospel's sake. Here we have a biblical, not just a biblical endorsement, we have a biblical mandate to contextualize the gospel and make it make sense to the people to whom we are speaking. Because often, what the church thinks it's saying, it's not actually saying. We're speaking churchy language to churchy people in churchy context, and we're just surprised that the world is not beating down our door to come and hear a bunch of churchy people existing in a churchy culture talking about churchy things in a churchy way. We just can't figure out why the world isn't rushing in to hear it. Right? And we ourselves believe at some point, ridiculous level that our church culture is actually the biblical culture the building in which you are sitting has no grounding in scripture the 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 songs that we just sang uh, stylistically have no grounding in scripture the logo that we have out on the front of our church uh, fancy though it be though I suppose some graphic designers might disagree has no grounding in scripture We have created our own Seventh-day Adventist culture, and the Christian church has created its own larger Christian culture. And I want to say something. God has not called us to turn people into variations or versions of our cultural selves. He told us to make disciples. And there's a wide difference between turning somebody into a cultural quasi-version of yourself and making a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we fall into a trap when we think, oh no, in order to become a follower of Jesus, you have to adapt to our culture. You have to sing our songs. You have to sit in our churches. You have to dress in our clothes. And we have to be very careful that we don't turn the message into our culture. The message is Christ and Him crucified, and the way that we choose to wrap it here in 2015 in Kingscliff on this Saturday morning uh, is just the way that we choose to wrap it. There's nothing particularly holy or particularly endorsed by God in the way that we're wrapping the message. The strength of the message is Christ and Him crucified. It is Scripture. Can you say amen? Now, this is the point. But now, here's where it gets dangerous. Some people say, oh, okay, so then we can do anything in the name of contextualization but here's the drama when we push contextualization too far and we don't have biblical parameters we end up not with contextualization but with capitualization or compromise paul says i become all things to all people The question is, are we being contextual or are we being compromising? Clearly, the children of Israel, as they went in to Canaan, they were compromising with the nation. That wasn't contextualization. God said, this is the kind of contextualization I want from you. Destroy the pillars, destroy the shrines, destroy the altars, and run those people out because God knew that there was nothing redeemable in those cultures. But here's a mistake that many of us make. Listen very carefully. This is a subtle point, and Christians are often not good at picking up nuance. Please listen to this. Because God said there can be no accommodation with the Canaanite culture does not mean that God says there can be no accommodation with any culture because there are certain cultures that have beautiful, honorable, and redeemable qualities. Can somebody say amen? And if you don't believe that, then you need to get out of your little anthropological, Adventist, or Christian bubble and realize that there are people outside of our world that believe in goodness and truth and fidelity and kindness and honor and all of those things. So, what we can do and what Paul says we must do is when we go to people in these various cultural contexts, we need to reach out to find those elements of redeemability, to find those elements of honor, to find those elements of virtue and create bridges with all of the redeemable cultural elements, but not. not, 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 not abide by or acquiesce to any of the non-redeemable or non-honorable or God dishonoring elements of that culture. If this makes sense, say amen. And fortunately for us, we don't have to guess how to do this. We can go to the book of Acts. We can go to Jesus. When Jesus was speaking to fishermen, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. When Jesus was speaking to a rich young ruler, he said, I'll give you treasure in heaven. When Jesus was sitting at the well and speaking to a woman who was thirsty, he said, I'll give you water, you'll never thirst again. When the apostle Paul stand himself, found himself standing before the, the people there in, in Athens, he said, from your own gods, I want to quote some of your own poets, I perceive that you are very religious and God is made of one nation, all of us, one blood, all of the nations, He was building bridges with the Athenians. He built bridges with those in Lystra. If he was in a synagogue on a Jewish day telling a Jewish story, he talked about the Jewish scriptures. If he wasn't in a Jewish situation, he didn't tell a Jewish story. We don't have to wonder what this looks like because we have a very good template in the book of Acts. But sadly, tragically, many of us have departed from this template and we have become persuaded, quite mistakenly, that our Adventist culture... Or our Christian culture is the message. And I want to remind you, it's not. The message is Christ and Him crucified. And there comes a place, a tipping point, and I think in some regards we are there, in various parts of the world we certainly are, where, watch this, our culture is no longer just neutral. Our culture is no longer just um, a, a point of neutrality where it's not winning or losing. Our churchy, Christian, Adventist culture can actually become a hindrance to the preaching of the message that we claim is so near and dear to our hearts. And it's at this tipping point that we have to take a long, hard look at everything that we do and ask, why do we do that? 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 And how would that be perceived by somebody who is not familiar with our culture, not familiar with our language, and not familiar with our way of doing things? Can the church say amen? This is a challenging thing, especially for second, third, fourth, and fifth generation Adventists who have perhaps unwittingly come to assume that your way of doing things and your parents' way of doing things and your grandparents' way of doing things is the right way, and even astonishingly, you might think it's the biblical way. But I am going to challenge you, and I'm going to challenge this church to reassess and say, listen, let's not just do church in a culturally sensitive way. I'm talking our own culture. Let's do church in as much as we can recreate it here in 2015 in a biblical way. Can you say amen? Contextualization versus capitulation. Believers don't disconnect from those around us for disconnection's sake. And man, I tell you, too many... Well-meaning Christians have gotten this wrong. They think that they have to separate from the world for separation's sake. No, we have to disconnect for disconnection's sake. No, 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 that's not what Paul says. We don't separate from those around us for separation's sake. We don't disconnect from those around us for disconnection's sake. Well, why do we? We labor to connect with those around us for the gospel's sake. Do you get it? Now, are there points where we're going to have to depart from the prevailing culture? The answer is yes. Of course, there are going to be specific God-dishonoring points that we are going to have. We are compelled by Scripture to depart from the prevailing culture around us. But too often, Christians and Seventh-day Adventists are included in this. We are known not, listen carefully, not for what we're for, but for what we're against. Are you with me, yes or no? And we do not want our, we do, I'm telling you, we don't want the perception of us to be that they're against, they're against, they're against, they're against, they're against. Yes, we might very well be against things based on scripture, but it would be far better for us and more attractive to those around us if we were known what we were for, for building bridges and not walls. You see Jesus in the New Testament, man, the guy is in a continual state of building bridges. He says to a Roman centurion, surely I've not seen so great faith in all of Israel. And when the people were offended and astonished by his saying, he turned to them and he said, does this offend you? I'm telling you right now, many will come from the east and the west. That is to say, from the east of Jerusalem and the west of Jerusalem, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was the master contextualizer, and yet we are often content to sit in our own cultural bubble and pretend as though we're bringing the gospel to the world. We labor to connect with those around us for the gospel's sake. And here's a fascinating thing, and I'm just gonna close of just two or three minutes. I wanna wrap with this. When we go through all the way through the seven chapters, choo, 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 and we come down to exile, which we're gonna deal with. You see, there's gonna be some significant repercussions if I can just give you the trailer for the exile section. That this is the movie. Now here's the trailer. When we get to exile, what's going to happen is the children of Israel and Judah are going to go into exile for a significant period of time, and then this fascinating period of what's called Second Temple Judaism is going to emerge. The temple's going to be rebuilt, and Jesus is going to come out on the scene at this time. But two amazing things will have happened. A number of amazing things will have happened, but especially as we read the New Testament, we encounter two primary forces in the New Testament. The Pharisees, how many of us know what I'm talking about when I say the Pharisees? Okay, there's six of us? How many of us know what to talk about? Let's say the Pharisees. Okay, good. And how about the Sadducees? Now, here's an amazing thing that happens. When we come to the New Testament, for 500 years, Second Temple Judaism has been insulating itself and insulating itself and insulating itself and insulating itself because they were bound and determined to never be carried away into idolatry and captivity again. And so you have this massive isolationism, this massive insularity, so much so that by the time we get to the New Testament, you couldn't even say the name of certain, Jewish pe- or ju- certain Gentile or non-Jewish peoples without spitting. Puh, puh. There was this rabid, patriotic, nationalistic, emotional, psychological, spiritual insularity. And that was the Pharisees. Look at what the screen says here. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees epitomized a cultural overcorrection, totally cut off from the prevailing nations. And the Sadducees in Jesus' time, a cultural undercorrection. Hey, when in Rome, go along with the Romans. And Jesus came and presented a viable, better, and biblical option. It's not total isolation from culture, but neither is it total accommodation to culture. Can somebody say amen? Now, all of that was a parenthetical statement. And I want to close by asking you this final question again. What are the high places of compromise in your life? I'm not talking about contextualization. And I want to say this. If you are in the process of trying to contextualize the gospel and somebody accuses you of compromise, you need to listen to them. But don't be you need to be listen to them and be respectful, but don't be dissuaded by well-meaning but ultimately generationally embedded people who cannot see that the gospel sometimes needs to take on new faces and new forms in order to reach new people in new cultures in new situations. Sometimes people are just contextualizing and they're accused of compromise. Sam knows what I'm talking about very well. This is one of the big questions that we have when we go to reach our Muslim brothers and sisters. We have to contextualize if we're going to reach this people group. If you know anything about Islamic ministry, we are damned fools if we think that we're going to get Muslims to walk into a building like this on Saturday morning and live like we live and talk like we talk and eat like we eat and and, whether we eat like we eat, but just carry on like we carry on. No, we're going to have to take the gospel and deliver it from the womb of Adventist culture and take the gospel message, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and drop the gospel message into a culture and to adapt and to accept all the best parts of that culture, but let the gospel reach out and create its own new biblical culture in the various cultures in which it finds itself. Are Are you hearing what I'm saying? So some people are actually simply trying to contextualize for the gospel's sake, and they're accused of compromise. But there are other people who actually are compromising. And I don't want to pretend that I can stand up here before you and have everything figured out. I have every I dotted and every T crossed. But I can tell you, I know who the template is. And the template is Jesus. We have to stay away from the overcorrection of the Pharisees, the undercorrection of the Sadducees. We have to strive to meet culture in a biblical way and to build every bridge that we can possibly bridge and only the, we want to build, build only as many walls as we have to. In your life, it's a very good chance that you, like myself, like myself, have aspects of Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoash, Amaziah, and Jotham in your life. You're generally a good person. I believe that. But there are some accommodations, there are some compromises, there are some acquiescences. And I'm not talking about acquiescing for evangelistic purposes. I'm talking about acquiescing because you're lazy, because you're addicted, because you've bought into a way of thinking that is unbiblical. I don't know what your high places are, but I know what mine are. I don't know where your high places are located in the landscape of your life, but I know where mine are located. And friends, I want to challenge myself this morning and I want to challenge you. Don't be satisfied with Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham. Strive to be like Hezekiah. Strive to be like Josiah because they were striving to be like Jehovah. I plead with you, Do not accommodate yourself to the sensuality, perversity, and even violence of the prevailing culture. That would be compromise. That's not contextualization. That's compromise. And I invite you over this holiday period, while you go into exile for four weeks... Some of you are going away. Some of you are staying. Some of you... I'll be in Tasmania for a time. While while I go into exile, I want to evaluate, as I prepare to launch into our penultimate chapter in this series... Where and what are the high places in David Asherick's life? And where and what are the high places in your life? And by the grace of God, let's go tear those down. Let's make sure that our whole life is God honoring. Let's make sure that by his grace, our whole life is something that Jesus could come to every nook. To every closet, to every cranny, to every web page, to every movie, to every money spent. Let's just let's just let's just strive to have a life that Jesus is welcome in every room. Every room. Let's get rid of the high places, which are really the low places. Father in heaven, big day today. It's a day that we are challenged to look at the history of Israel and the history of Judah and say, you know what? These high places are not going to do. I'm not doing this for some evangelistic contextualization. Father, many of us in this room know we're doing it out of laziness or sensuality or perversity or just pure fun or even, Father, in some cases, cases, rebellion, just outright rebellion. And Father, I I believe in my heart of hearts that the people that are in this room right now are good people. They're people that want to serve you and want to love you. I think there are many Jehoshaphats, Aces, and, and Jehoashes, and Jothams in here. But Father, I pray that in my own life, there would be more Josiah. There'd be more Hezekiah. And I pray that for the lives of the people here. Father, give us a great holiday. We're really looking forward to next Sabbath with the preaching of these four young people. Father, even now you know who they are. I know who they are. Fill them with your spirit and may they bring a message to us, a message that challenges us. And in this exile period, this four-week period where we're off from our series, may it be an opportunity for us to reflect on Israel, on Judah. The dream has died. The wheels have come off. The Exodus people have now become the exiled people. And Father, what lessons can we learn as we head rapidly, speedily toward the New Testament, and we, arri- we arrive there and we find a man named Jesus. Father, we know that He makes up the difference. He's the great forgiver. He's the great Savior. And Father, for the inconsistencies, hypocrisies, and weaknesses in our lives, when we don't have the Josiah and Hezekiah strength, Father, we look to Jesus for forgiveness, for mercy, for grace. But Father, we also look for power and clarity and strength to get rid of, of those things in our lives that bring dishonor to our Savior and our King and our Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Let all of God's God-honoring people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you all.